In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to Scary Mysteries, brought to you by Nudon Films. Every Monday, we'll tell you about topics that range from serial killers and UFOs to unexplained mysteries, ghosts, and everything in between. If it's scary and it's mysterious, then we've got you covered. And check us out on YouTube as well if you want to watch each episode. Thanks for tuning in. Five Shocking Stories of Ultimate Revenge When someone feels that justice hasn't been served, it can cause them to seek revenge. Overwhelmed by anger and frustration, an otherwise normal person can be driven to commit violent acts against those who cause them pain and grief. From a kidnapped son to mob justice, these are the five most shocking stories of ultimate revenge. Number 5. Reza Gull A parent losing their son is always heartbreaking, but one mother channeled her grief into the ultimate form of revenge. Reza Gull feared for her son's life when she suddenly heard gunshots being fired. It was November 17, 2014, and approximately 400 Taliban soldiers set an attack on the Balabalak district of the Farah province in western Afghanistan. They were attempting to take over the district, and at around 5 a.m., gunshots began ringing out. Reza's son, Safiola, was the head of the local police force of the district and had 10 men under his wing. After realizing that the attack was worsening and worried about her son, Reza ran towards the post. In her own words, she said, I couldn't stop myself and picked up his weapon, went to the check post and began shooting back. Even though she could see her young son lying dead in front of her and gunshots firing everywhere, she found the courage to fight back, and Reza wasn't alone. Her husband, Abdul Sattar, her daughter and her youngest son also joined. They made a pact right then and there to fight off the Taliban at all costs 
even if it meant losing their own lives. According to Abdul, he said, My young son, who was a police officer, was killed in front of my eyes. I pulled aside his dead body and started fighting to defend my soil. I was committed to give up my life, but not my son's check post. Reza and her family took part in a long gun battle against the Taliban that lasted nearly seven hours. In the end, 25 Taliban soldiers were dead and another 31 were injured. With their army depleted, they had no choice but to withdraw, and they soon left. The Taliban thought they would come in and take over the province with little resistance. But after her son's death, Reza and her family found the strength to fight back and amazingly force an entire army to back down. Number 4. Buford Pusser Buford Pusser was the one man criminals didn't want to cross. Born December 12, 1937, he waged a war against prostitution, moonshining, gambling, and various other illegal activities around the Tennessee-Mississippi line while he served as sheriff for McNary County between 1964 and 1970. He became so well known for his vengeful acts against criminals that several movies and books were even written about him. A former wrestler during his younger days, Buford had an imposing stature and stood six and a half feet tall and weighed in at 250 pounds. When his dad, who was a police chief, expressed his decision to retire, he asked Buford if he wanted the job and promised to help him get it if he did. After securing votes from the city board, Buford became the police chief. Shortly after that, he ran a rigorous campaign and became the sheriff of McNary County on September 1, 1964, at just 26 years old. From the moment he stepped into the position, he hired his dad as jailer and began his often bloody campaign against the state line mob, often referred to as the Dixie Mafia. His campaign transformed him into a local hero by the residents. His war on crime was so effective, it also put him on the top of the enemy's hit list. He would experience at least six assassination attempts in his life, all of which he survived. The first one was in February 1966, when he was shot by a hidden 38 pistol a robber was carrying. Buford managed to fire back, killing the attacker, and a year after that, in January 1967, he was shot three times by an unknown gunman. But it was the third attempt that would bring his prominence further into the limelight. On the morning of August 12, 1967, Buford got a call stating there was a problem in New Hope and his presence was needed. His wife Pauline went with them. As they were driving, a black Cadillac suddenly attacked them, riddling their vehicle with gunfire. Pauline was killed and Buford received almost fatal wounds, including two bullets to the face. When he got out of the hospital, he launched his own investigation into his wife's murder. He named the contractor of his assassination attempt to be Kirksey McCord Nix Jr. However, Nix was never officially charged. It's worth noting that all the four men he had accused of carrying out the assassination and murder all turned up dead, one by one, after Buford was forced out of the office because of term limits. His quote-unquote war on crime intensified before his term ended. When his fame reached its peak, he was offered movie rights, even a movie role after his initial biopic Walking Tall became a box office hit. Just hours after signing the contract and receiving the good news, 
Buford drove home using his new Corvette when he skidded off the road and hid an embankment. He died soon after, and although it was ruled an accident, many suspect his car had been sabotaged and that he was in fact actually murdered by one of his many enemies. Number 3. Ken McElroy To the people of Skidmore, Missouri, Ken McElroy was a nuisance. He was violent, a possible child molester, a criminal, and a thug. They didn't want anything to do with him, but they also couldn't get rid of him. Ever since he was a kid, McElroy had established himself as a small-time thief and womanizer. Even though he was accused and suspected of stealing antiques, alcohol, gasoline, and even livestock, he was never charged, successfully avoiding charges on 21 accusations. Those who witnessed his criminal activities often refused to testify because he would threaten and intimidate them by stalking their homes. McElroy had 10 children from different women. His last wife, Trina, was only 12 years old when they met. She was in 8th grade and after 2 years she became pregnant with his son. She dropped out of school to live with him and his third wife, Alice. And to avoid statutory rape charges, McElroy filed for divorce from Alice and married Trina. The two women tried to leave him several times, but he would never allow it to happen. In 1980, McElroy got into an argument with a local store owner, Ernest Bowenkamp, and his wife, Lois. They alleged that one of the McElroy kids tried to steal candy. Upset about it, McElroy began stalking the family and it escalated to him shooting Ernest in the neck during a confrontation at the back of his store. Luckily, Ernest survived and McElroy stood trial and was charged, but released on bail pending his appeal. Right after he got out of jail, he went to a local tavern armed with a shotgun and graphically proclaimed what he would do to Ernest if he saw him. The townsfolk and Ernest himself went to the sheriff to ask what they could do to protect themselves against this loose cannon, and he instructed them not to engage or get into direct confrontation with McElroy. The sheriff then left town on another call, and everyone went to the tavern to face the man head on. Some words were exchanged and after McElroy finished drinking, he bought a six-pack and left. But while inside his pickup truck in the parking lot, McElroy was shot several times with two bullets hitting him directly in the chest. There were a total of 46 people who witnessed the incident, including Trina, who was seated beside him inside the truck. However, everyone that was there claimed they either didn't see the shooter or didn't know anything as to what had happened. In fact, nobody even bothered to call the ambulance as McElroy lay there dying and the crowd just walked away. In the end, without any concrete evidence, the DA couldn't press charges. It wasn't until later on that Trina brought on a wrongful death lawsuit against the county for $6 million, but it was settled out of court and she only received 17600 No one ever admitted guilt and to this day no one will say who pulled the trigger and killed the town bully Ken McElroy that day. Number 2. Alam Khan How long and how far would you go for revenge? Alam Khan was only a 12-year-old boy in 2003 when he witnessed his father's murder by a family friend named Mohammed Reis. Ever since then, he knew he wanted to take revenge for what had happened. It wasn't until he turned 24 when he invited Mohammed to his house to execute the deed. 
Once inside, Alam played music at top volume, then stabbed Reyes with a knife without warning. Afterward, he and an accomplice cut his body up into 12 pieces, each piece representing each year he had to wait to exact his revenge. After chopping him up, they stuffed the parts into trash bags and threw them into a nearby river. On December 16th, residents were shocked to find floating body parts. When the police were called, they had a hard time identifying the body on the spot, but later on a resident named Amar Hussein recognized stitch marks on the chest as belonging to his brother. He then told police that Reyes was last seen leaving for Alam's house for a couple drinks, but never returned. After this tip-off, the police raided Khan's house and managed to recover the murder weapon, including items like a hammer, saw, and a belt, which was used for cutting up the body. Khan never resisted arrest. In fact, when asked about the crime, he told the reporters the events and how he lured Reyes into his home under the pretense of having a drink. The police superintendent commenting about Khan said that he was smiling and showed a complete and utter lack of remorse for what he had done. Alam admitted he never told anybody what he saw when his father was murdered because he wanted to realize his dream and take revenge on Reyes himself. In the end, he said he was happy it was now done. Alam is currently awaiting trial for the murder and will most likely face a long sentence. Number 1. Gary Plosh Every loving father only wants the best for his son. Gary Plosh was considered by those who knew him to be a funny, kind, and loving man. He coached the local baseball team and made sure his friends and family got a good laugh whenever he was around. So when his child was threatened, he did what he had to do and took revenge on the man who kidnapped and systematically molested his son. Jeffrey Doucette was a 25-year-old karate instructor who taught Gary's son, Jody. Doucette and Jody's relationship as instructor and teacher didn't register any alarms until one day in February of 1984. Doucette had picked up Jody that morning and promised to drop him off in the evening, just like he had done many times before. However, that night, Jody never made it back home. It turns out Jeffrey was a sick pedophile who had been secretly abusing Jody every chance he got. He had grown so obsessed with the child that he planned on finally making life together with him by moving to California where no one would know who they were. It would take a week before anybody would find out where Jeffrey Doucette had taken Jody. The Plosh family lived in fear thinking the worst when the police finally came in with some good news that they had pinpointed the whereabouts of Doucette. They found him inside a California motel with Jody and arrested him without incident. Jody then returned to his family on March 1st, 1984. Gary admitted he didn't know what to do and felt helpless realizing his son had been sexually molested for months, even before the kidnapping happened. Doucette was charged for aggravated kidnapping and confessed to molesting Jody and other children. And on March 16th, Doucette was escorted by Baton Rouge police officers after being flown back from California. Inside the Baton Rouge Metropolitan Airport, a local news crew was waiting for their arrival to capture footage of the suspect. Doucette and the officers arrived around 9.30 p.m. and walked past the television crew to a bank of payphones. On the payphone was a man in a white baseball cap and sunglasses talking to his friend. The moment Doucette walked past this man, he spun around facing him 
and shot a single bullet at point-blank range, hitting Doucette in the head. The man placed the gun on the floor before officers could restrain him, and to their shock, they realized it was Gary Plosh. The news crew on site captured the entire shooting. Footage of the video has been uploaded on YouTube and viewed over 18 million times. The video is graphic and explicit, but it shows just how far father would go to protect his own kid. Gary pleaded no contest to second-degree manslaughter and was given a suspended sentence of seven years in prison and five years of probation, including hundreds of hours of community service, all of which he successfully completed. He never spent a single day in jail for the murder of the man who molested his son. So there were five shocking stories of ultimate revenge. Revenge is sweet, they say, and for these people it may seem so. There's no doubt they lived to see the day when they could finally exact what they likely felt to be righteous revenge over those that wronged them. Thanks for listening, and remember to subscribe and check out Scary Mysteries on YouTube as well for additional videos. I'll see you next week.